Welcome to another episode of the LSAT Pros Podcast. I'm Steve Schwartz from the LSAT Blog. And I'm Graham Blake from LSAT Hacks. And we're here to answer your LSAT questions. So we have one here in the chat. Racing against the digital format of the LSAT, I'm doing the most I can to improve drastically by June. Is 8 to 10 points doable in two months? If so, what would you do if you were me, assuming you're in the high 150s? So I definitely hear where you're coming from. I would also want to be trying to race against the digital and get the paper and pencil done by June if possible. Is 8 to 10 points doable in two months? It absolutely is. I've seen it happen many times. And the question of how, it really depends on your particular situation. So I'd be looking to see what's been giving you the most trouble, what are your weak areas, and of course, focusing on those, whether they're conceptual within games, reasoning, or reading comp, or maybe it's something about timing and pacing, or maybe it's about endurance. So I'd really just be looking at what your personal unique situation is. Feel free to share more details in the chat if you want to share more on that in particular. I'd also want to know how long you've been studying for up to this point and what you've done thus far. So I think this student is the one who asked a question on like a previous episode, and they've been studying for six months, and they've improved by 14 points. So you said you've seen many students make this kind of improvement. Have you seen many students with like that profile, like a fairly long study period already improved, make eight to 10 points in two months? I will admit that if you've already improved 14 points, it is harder to improve going forward. It does become a bit of diminishing marginal returns. But this student, I think he went from a 145 to a 159. And so he's still looking to cross into that 160 threshold. And I think, honestly, it's easier to go from the 150s to the 160s than from the 160s to the 170s. And so this student's adding some details here. I work about 30 to 35 hours and usually study about three to four hours in the morning since I work a later shift. So if you're carving out three to four hours a day and you're working a 35-hour week, that's a lot. And I definitely want to just acknowledge this student for committing the time because I think that's ultimately what it's going to take over the next two months between now and June. So looking at how to get that extra eight to 10 points, I think that going from the 140s to the 150s often involves just learning the basics, the fundamentals, building the foundation untimed. But then going for those additional points, I think will come a lot more from adjusting to, to individual time sections, dealing with the pacing of the 35 minute time constraint and then also engaging in excruciatingly detailed review. So I think for too many students, the review part is what's missing from the process. And that's where those additional points come from after you've made your initial score improvement from the foundation. Yeah, I would I would uh, also confirm that, you know, getting from the 150s to 160s is going to be easier than the 160s to 170s, other things equal. If, I mean, if someone's already been studying, already improved and so on. Um, I think the digital LSAT might be an artificial goal. And I think adding a lot of like time pressure may not be helpful to the overall um, goal of improving a fair bit. Like the improvement will take the time that it takes. And we said in the last episode to the same student that having a break may be very helpful after such a long study period, especially if you're, you know, working another job and studying intensely, like you're probably tired. Um, your brain is probably tired and having some time off will be very helpful for that. But then if you've got this hard deadline of two months, then you may not feel that you can take a two to three break, but that might be what you need to make that larger improvement. Um, the digital else is going to be different, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to be harder for sure. Um, I mean, 
people have been taking like say the GMAT digitally for years and I don't know that it's I mean there is a small subset of students for whom screens are very difficult and if you're in that subset this, this doesn't apply but for most people we're dealing with screens every day we can do stuff on screens we can do stuff on paper I don't think it's as big a deal as people will make it out to be like you know people talk about it because it's a change and changes are new and different and everything to focus on but what really matters is your underlying skill at the LSAT and yeah because you know I've I've taken tests digitally before not the digital LSAT officially but I mean I've just had a PDF and like marked it up or I've had something on a screen and I've written down the answers on a sheet of paper like it it's the same thing it's the same test so I wouldn't let the date get in the way of taking the time that's needed to give yourself the space to uh improve rather than just like switching into like cramming mode because you've got a deadline to meet that's a fair point i think that at this point two months out before the digital lsat you don't want to overly compress your study timeline if you need that time this particular student has been studying for i think six months already and improved quite a bit but going forward to june with only two months remaining it really it really isn't worth compressing it if you're only if you're planning to apply this fall anyway i'm actually recommending that students now going forward consider taking both the june and the july lsats because there's only a five to six week gap in between the two and so it's not that much additional effort to stay fresh on the lsat maybe take another time to exam a week over the course of the next five to six weeks because even just through luck alone you could improve a couple of points and open a lot more doors for your admissions chances in the end. So yeah, I'd say anyone listening right now, two months, don't rush it. Maybe consider taking both or go for June. And then if you have to postpone or withdraw, go for July instead. And July, of course, half of students will still get the paper format. And so if you're overly stressed about that, just know that it could go the paper direction for you on that test date. But yeah, if you're concerned about, about the digital LSAT, obviously, Familiarize yourself with the digital LSAT familiarization tool at familiar.lsat.org. You could play with it on a tablet or a smartphone even if you wanted to. Yeah, and as for improving 8 to 10 points in two months, um, if you've already made a large improvement, it's hard to say because I find at this point like people sort of diverge and like one group just kind of plateaus and just doesn't improve at all. Another group keeps improving. So... You know, you may find that, like, all the time in the world isn't enough, or you may find that, like, two months is enough if you find that way to, like, keep um, changing your approach with your changing knowledge and continuing to press forward. And then if it's the latter case, if you manage to find out how to just keep getting continual improvement, you don't really have to worry about the deadline again because you're applying, you could take anything in the fall and still apply. As long as you keep making improvement, maybe you hit it by June. Maybe you hit it later, um, but it doesn't really matter that much because you will be boosting your score up. Whereas if you don't find that way to improve, then it doesn't matter how much you work or how fast you want to try to meet the deadline. You're just kind of stalled. So the most important thing is finding out how to keep making progress, not focusing on a deadline. If you find a way to keep improving your skills, then you definitely have enough time, whether it is two months or later. Because it sounds like the hard thing here is not like some life deadline. Like, I don't know, you're having a kid born in June and like, well, you just won't be able to study. Um, it's a digital test and that's not really a big deal compared to, again, the underlying skill improvement. Yeah, the skills definitely trump that overall. So the next question is, 
during a timed exam or actual exam, how do you recommend not getting frustrated and stuck on certain uh, I logic think games? We did this one. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Wait, or right. in... yes, yeah, yeah, we did this. Oh, you did. We did. You're yeah. right. In your opinion, is conditional logic the number one foundation for doing logic games, puzzles, and logical reasoning questions? Is it the number one foundation? I don't know that it's the number one foundation, but it is important. I think that it's something that kind of is, it kind of is a common thread throughout the LSAT overall. And so it's definitely very useful to learn it. But so I'd say it's worth learning it. Just go ahead and learn it. But I think a relative ranking there, I think there are many other things going on overall. I think reading carefully is the number one foundation, honestly. What do you think, Graham? Yeah, I would have said reading carefully or I would have say like precise understanding. You know, when I did the LSAT, I'm not even sure if I knew what conditional logic was. Like I just was sort of intuitively good at logic and it was more of a struggle because I didn't have like the diagramming tools that absolutely do help. But I was very precise in how I read and so I knew what stuff meant. And so even though I didn't know what conditional logic was, it didn't get in the way. I mean, I did for logic games. I knew how to make some diagrams there, but on logical reasoning, I just, I don't think I knew. Um, so I definitely don't think it's the number one foundation. I think precise understanding is the number one foundation and that can be trained. Um, an example of what I mean by precision would be say, say something says like, uh, there are some people coming through the door that you actually don't form a specific image of how many people that has to be. Because as we know with the word sum, it could be anything from like one person to like a million people coming through the doorway. And you need to be able to think of things in terms of ranges and also to know like exactly what something means. And just that level, that precise understanding of which conditional logic is a subset is the key skill on... Um, logical reasoning for logic games uh conditional logic is a bit more important but i still think just sort of precise understanding and ability to see how things interact is more important i really like what you said about not even knowing the conditional logic at first in logical reasoning because it's, it's funny a lot of those logical reasoning questions there are formulas underlying them like for the sufficient assumptions that we discussed in the last episode but it turns out that you can actually solve a lot of those through just blind intuition alone, through your own general aptitude. And that will often carry you a lot on the easier questions. It's really the tougher questions where you actually have to know how to apply particular strategies and on an even deeper level, why those exact strategies work. But yeah. I also wouldn't want to overemphasize diagramming because I think that there's conditional logic, which is just good to absorb. And then there's diagramming. And I think it's important to paint a distinction between them. I actually wouldn't recommend diagramming most logical reasoning questions. And I see students diagramming them far too much. Yeah. And the other thing about conditional logic and diagrams, like it's just English. Like that's how I was able to do the questions when I didn't know what a conditional statement was. I knew English really well. I had done a lot of reading. I had done like math and economics. So I was accustomed to like thinking precisely and I knew what the words meant. And so even though I didn't know how to turn it into diagrams, I knew what, the meaning of the words was and that's the actual key and also it's like it's only like maybe three questions per section that you might draw so you know if there were 25 questions per section 
I probably would have had to learn how to draw stuff just to get the efficiency gain. But on the like random number of questions, it was totally workable not knowing what conditional logic in terms of diagrams was, but being able to just understand what the English meant was fine. And I think there's a lot of questions in logical reasoning that you can you could rearrange things in order to better diagram them. And there are so many cases where there are not clear indicator words, and so diagramming won't come naturally. But I think in kind of post-test analysis, post-test analysis, looking at explanations, talking through the questions, we can actually see how to frame a lot of these, a lot of this reasoning in a conditional way, even if you typically would not want to diagram it. I often think of indicator words like people who, as a sufficient indicator, or even cases where like evidence, therefore conclusion could be rearranged as if evidence, therefore conclusion, or if evidence, then conclusion. So I think this is this conditional logic distinction is a bit fuzzy sometimes. Yeah. So there's a follow-up question to this one based on that. So that was, is conditional logic the number one foundation, which we just disagreed with? Uh, what are the biggest indicators of applying the contrapositive into the question stems answer choices? In other words, what's the best way to apply when attacking questions? I feel like I'm seeing it should be a very big part of it, but then I also see you shouldn't be doing it to every question. So I am just going to say that this, I disagree with the whole premise of the question, that your ultimate goal shouldn't be applying the contrapositive of a conditional statement. You should just know what the statement means, and the contrapositive is part of what the statement means. Um, It's like, Sorry, I'm trying to think of like a good analogy. If you've got, well, I don't know. So you've got like a glass that has water in it. You can tell I'm like doing a podcast with a glass of water in front of me. And if you turn the glass upside down, water comes out and the bottom is on the top. And if you turn it over again, water can go in and the bottom is on the bottom. And that's just like how a glass works. Now, when I look at this glass of water next to me, I don't need to pick it up and tilt it over and pour it on my keyboard to know what turning it upside down does. I'm just like sort of passively aware of how a glass full of water works. And that's sort of what a contrapositive is. If I say like all cats have tails, then I also need to know that like this glass of water, again, it doesn't have a tail, so it's not a cat. That's a contrapositive, no tail, no cat. Um, so it's not a thing that once you get to an advanced level, you're like looking and applying a contrapositive and deciding where to do it. You just, you know what the object is and how it works. And just to round off this thing about the glasses, like that might seem like the most trivial thing. Like, of course, you know how a glass works. But if you'd never seen a glass and you'd never had a glass full of water, you probably would have to, for the first few times, like turn a glass of water upside down and see how it works. We all did this when we were kids, and that's why we know it now. Like a lot of what kids are doing when they're just sort of messing with the world is learning how the world works. And then you forget about all that. And you just sort of know stuff. Um, but then when you see a new thing like the contrapositive, you look at it and you don't just know it and you don't remember how you learned the things you learned about the world when you were a kid. And you think it's a thing you've got to like think about, but it's actually a thing you've got to get towards knowing instead. It's funny. I, I liked your water example. This contrapositive thing made me think of another analogy where it's like when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I feel like this person is so excited about the contrapositive, and I get it. I love it too. 
But if you apply to every single question, you're, you're going to be wasting a lot of time because it doesn't apply everywhere, not to every question and not to every single answer choice. It's a tool to remove from your toolbox and apply it when you need to apply it. And that can happen at a certain point. It actually does become automatic where if you're like, let's say you predict an answer, you predict the answer, you scan through the choices for it, you don't see it, you could then say, oh wait, well they might've framed it with the contrapositive and then you translate it and do it then. Or maybe you just love to do the contrapositive automatically at the beginning when you're dealing with a formal logic question. And in that case, it could be useful for it, but I don't think the contrapositive or even diagramming applies to that many logical reasoning questions. So I would really reserve it for particular cases. And those particular cases for me at least would typically be formal logic questions that are very technically abstractly worded, kind of the way that nobody would ever talk in the real world where you could easily diagram things symbolically and go forward from there. So I'd say there are certain question types where this comes up, typically must be true inference questions or some sufficient assumption questions or some parallel questions, but it's not that frequent, honestly. Yeah, I guess, you know, they asked about what's the biggest indicator. The biggest indicator that a contrapositive can apply is if there's a conditional statement. If there's no conditional statement, which is most of the LSAT, then it can't be applied. This kind of reminds me of something I see sometimes where people will, like, ask me about, like, using negations, and they'll, which is something that you would mainly use almost exclusively on necessary assumption answer choices. But they'll just, they've found this tool, like you said, Steve, hammer nail. They'll just be like trying to apply it everywhere. And so like, so I was trying to apply this negation to like this strengthen question. And I was, it's not really working. I'm like, well, no, you shouldn't use it there. <laughs> that's, that's why it's not working. Um, and so the same thing with the contrapositive, like it's not, it doesn't apply in most places. It has to be a conditional statement. If this, then that. Actually, sometimes see people like say like, well, I took the contrapositive of a most statement or some statement. Like you can't do that. It's not a thing you can do if it's not a conditional statement. Um, so, yeah, just, I guess I would sum up by saying, like, one, learn to do it intuitively so you just see it, like, that's the ultimate goal, and two, it's not that useful in most places, as in it just doesn't apply in most places. Much like my knowledge about a water glass is only really applicable when carrying a water glass. It's not useful in most other situations. Yeah, sounds like we're of like, like minds on that. So the next question is, from the chat, how do you know whether to make more worlds or templates on logic games? Many times during time restrictions, I can't decide whether to move on to the questions or to take the time to make the scenarios. That's a great question. Yeah, templates and worlds and scenarios, whatever you call them, they are extremely useful, but they're actually not as useful as they used to be on the most recent LSAT exams, those sorts of games that involve one key trigger that unlocks the game. That happened a lot, particularly in the games in the 30s and even before that, but I think in these exams now going into the 80s, it's not happening quite as much, so I wouldn't be married to that particular technique. As far as how to know whether to make those multiple diagrams, it's intuition and it's practice. There's no one key thing that will always unlock games for you. Typically, I'd be looking for a particularly restrictive uh, rule or particular restrictive scenario or particular uh, variable in isolation and see whether that particular rule or variable when combined with other rules or other variables will be especially limited or limiting. And so if you play around with it a bit, kind of puzzle through it, you may see it or you may not. And if you don't just ultimately cut and move on to the questions because you're not going to find it going forward 
and you don't want to throw a good time after bad. But I do think that this is a useful strategy and the best way to kind of get a rhythm for it is to do the same games multiple times and also look at explanations online and see how other people walk through the games. Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, I would say like for how I would do it, look at my explanations because like I know some explanations will like do a lot of scenarios up front and that's like the tutor style. And like I think they manage to actually solve games that way and then some people do it less. So you want to find someone whose style like you like and then see how they do it. So if you look at where I split them, you'll, like like she said, you can get an intuition for it by just repeating games, seeing where I've split it, seeing where I didn't in my Logic Games explanations, and then sort of getting a feel for like this type of game does it. But for more concrete science, one thing that often does it is if one thing can only be in two ways. So if this thing says like, you know, L is either third or fifth, that for me is usually like a clear, like split it, draw both scenarios, see what happens. I've also noticed that if there's like, just one conditional rule then that can be split so you know if the whole thing that the game just has a lot of conditional rules then usually they're not that significant but if there's just one then i found that if you draw the conditional rule happening that usually makes a scenario and then if you draw it not happening that also makes a scenario and that's a way to split it into two and yeah i, I love it so in your example like if l's on two or versus l on five you draw two major diagrams, one with L2, one with L5, and presumably in that scenario, there would be other rules involving L as well. So you could see that L on two, or maybe other rules involving slots two or five. And so that could be a clear kind of trigger point to divide it. Or in the conditional example, there's a game where you have something like if A is on four, then such and such happens. If A is not on four, then this other thing happens. And so once again, you split in two major ways. The key is that you want to make sure that you are encompassing all possible worlds so like l if l's only on two or five then those are the only two scenarios but if they're just saying l could be on two or five then that's obviously obviously much more open-ended yeah and they also ask like many times during time restrictions i can't decide whether to move on or take time to make scenarios and one thing to keep in mind is that you don't necessarily have to decide then i think most things in logic games when done well should be easy in other words if you're like really struggling to find an additional deduction to see how to split a game it might be a sign that there are no more deductions and it's not time to split and then if you get to the questions and they seem straightforward it means you're right if you do like the first two questions and like the first question's hard you skip it you go to the second question second question's hard then that means oops no i did miss something and then it would be time to go back. And it's easier to look for an additional deduction or to look to split things when you have affirmative knowledge that like, whoa, things were hard once I got to those questions. Let me look for something else because then you know you're missing something. Whereas if you're sort of like looking and you don't know whether you're missing or not missing something, it's very hard to know when to stop. And I find getting this knowledge that I'm missing something makes the search a lot easier. Yeah, agreed 100%. So the next question is, what is the most important foundation or thing that should be memorized to attack logic games or logical reasoning, or is there one specific to each? And I would kind of, once again, disagree with the premise of the question a little bit. Um, I don't think that the LSAT's really a memorization test. I think this is a test of a way of thinking and pattern recognition. And so in terms of, of a foundation, I suppose that if I had to kind of break it down to a concept, I'd say that the contrapositive is enormously useful. Linking together conditional statements is enormously useful. But I think overall, 
what you really want is the pattern recognition and seeing how LSAT questions are designed, whether it's games, reasoning, or reading comp. Obviously, the patterns are more apparent in games and reasoning, and that just comes from doing lots of games and lots of reasoning questions, seeing the different tricks they use to make LSAT questions more difficult, whether it's some sort of a pattern in the answer choices or whether it's the various ways they ramp up the difficulty of LSAT questions, making you chain together conditionals or making you parse things like unless, except, until, or without, or difficult topics or dense text or topics that you don't like. I think it's kind of different for every single person, but those are some of the biggest things that I think tend to give students trouble. So getting a sense of the patterns that underlie the exam and spotting those trends, you'll be better situated to handle them in the future. Yeah, so there's two things interesting about this question. One is that they're looking for the single big thing, which I think you can say. We talked about that previously, but like the main foundation for logical reasoning, which for me was like precision. But they're also talking about the thing to memorize. And the LSAT isn't a memorization test. So like the answer for logical reasoning, the like this, the most important foundation would be precise reading. Um, but that's not a thing you memorize. That's a skill you have or a skill you learn. Um, I mean, I guess if we're talking about memorization, then maybe conditional logic would be the one thing to memorize because it is something memorizable, whereas precise reading is, well, it's not a memorization thing. Like I said, it's a skill. Um, but for logic games, you know, the, the one thing you should memorize, this isn't the one thing, but it's all the common ways that games and their diagrams work and how to do them. Because games actually are sort of memorization. You have to just, you know, it's all, for most people, unfamiliar and foreign when you first look at it, and then you start doing it, and you start to see the patterns, and you start to see the diagram types, and then it starts to get better. And if you have memorized all of the, like, main diagram types, so that it's just, like, a language you can use, then Logic Games gets a lot easier. Still doesn't solve those, like, new, unusual games, but the skills involved in memorizing well the other things um, do help. So, I don't know it's sort of a question it's like the question isn't framed in the right way to think about the LSAT but if you were going to memorize something it would be how to do all of the game types and if you really really have that and have the skill to do it then that's the most important thing for logic games yeah well said well said uh, next question is how to practice predicting logical reasoning answers so I think that there's a couple of things. There's the formal logic, logical reasoning questions, where you can actually input some kind of formula. You have, a, like for sufficient assumption questions, I've laid out those formulas on my website. And what I do is I break them down into six major categories. And you can easily, if you learn those formulas, you can then take the stimulus and break it down evidence conclusion and actually derive a result. Look for it in the choices and you'll find it and pick it and move on. But then for things like strengthen and weaken or necessary assumption, I really do, do think it involves more engaging with the argument and looking at potential alternative explanations or scenarios and then seeing from there what how you might problematize the argument or how you might close the gap if there's a gap in the argument, which there typically is, of course. And so there may not always be one specific correct answer there could be a category of multiple correct answer there could be category containing multiple correct answers but i think that way of thinking where you think critically i think will ultimately help you because it's it basically is a version of reading actively 
and if you read actively and you engage with the text, think of it like someone having a conversation with you, then you'll be in a better position to see where they might be going with it in the answer choices. So I would say that the way to practice predicting logical reasoning answers is surprisingly simple, but few people do it. And the way you do it is you practice predicting logical reasoning answers. Now, what I mean is <laughs> most people don't do this, but if you, the way you would practice this is you would just take a thing, you would do it on timed, you would cover the answer choices, and then you would look at the question and just think, well, what's the answer going to be? And you take as long as it takes and you write down a prediction for what the answer is. And then you look at the answers. That's literally practicing prediction logical reasoning answers. I'll talk a bit more about like how to do that, but I think almost nobody does this exercise. And it's, I think, the single most important thing you could do to actually practice predicting it, to, to try it. So That's funny. That's like remarkably simple, but yeah. I think <laughs> things like drills like that, people never really want to take the time because it's hard. Yeah. Proper review is really, really hard. And people will say, you know, I don't have time to do all this review because I have to do more exams. And I'd say, well, do fewer exams and review them in more depth. I think doing this kind of exercise does take a lot of time, but just kind of like writing out your own explanations, writing out your own predictions, I could definitely see the value there. And to be clear, I would do this on like a fresh section that you hadn't done before, where like you really are predicting and you don't have any memory of it. The other things you can do, uh, Steve may have, Steve mentioned some good tips. I can't remember if what I'm about to say is what he mentioned, but I would say uh, look for the conclusion and the reasoning and think about what's wrong with it, at least in the flaw type questions. And once you figure out what's wrong with it, that generally gets you how to like strengthen it or weaken it or spot the flaw or um, even identify the reasoning or identify the conclusion. Um, understanding the conclusion the reasoning and if applicable what's wrong with it is the key knowledge required to predict an answer choice so i would focus on doing that focus on those skills and then actually directly practice trying to predict it and also remember that predicting them is not like a it's not a thing you've got to get to 100 percent. i'm not sitting and like predicting every answer correctly before i see the answers i do it maybe i don't know 60 70 percent of the time and then another like 10, 15% of the time I have a prediction and it's not the right thing. And so, and you know, you shouldn't be targeting 60, 70%. I'm just saying that's what I do. But uh, on the ones where you get it right, great. Makes you go faster. On the ones where like you missed a prediction either because you were wrong or just because the question just went another way. Doesn't matter. You know, you quickly skim the answer. So you're like, oh, they don't have my prephrase, whatever. Um, it's not a big deal. There's multiple ways they can do it. And you also have to watch for like, is there some answer that was like trying to trick me in based on what I had predicted and does this actually match it? But um, just actually predict it, practice predicting it. And I think you'll find it goes a long way. And I think it'll also vary from question type to question type. Like for flaw questions, I think that there typically is one clear big flaw they're looking for. But for a strength and a weakened question, they may choose the method that you thought of, but they may not. And then for most rolling supported or, or must be true, there are, of course, a variety of things that must be true or can be inferred based on the stimulus. And they're just choosing one of them. So I think there's different levels of understanding here. Like one level would be that you could predict one additional thing that must be true based on a combination of things 
in the stimulus or a paraphrase of the stimulus. But then to go on a deeper level of understanding, you'd be looking for how does LSAC like to think about things and what does LSAC like to make you, the test taker, do? A lot of times LSAC wants to make you chain conditional statements or take the contrapositive of things or rearrange things if they were in some strange or undesirable order like perhaps uh, evidence, main conclusion, sub-conclusion. That's not the order that you might want to easily parse it, but they want to make you kind of rearrange that and dissect it. And so knowing on a tougher question that they will be more likely to make you do those sorts of things, like maybe question 18 or question 22, then with that level of familiarity with the exam, with that knowledge of the pattern recognition, then you can better predict exactly where LSAC will go versus what some theoretical correct answer might have been. Yeah, great tips. Um, okay, next question. So someone says, many times I hear that logic games should be priority if you're not scoring at least minus one on the games. Shouldn't LR be priority since it's half the test? Or should I prioritize both over RC since it's supposedly the hardest to improve on? The reason people say to prioritize logic games is because it's easier to improve on. So even though logic games have the majority of the points, if you look at like how many of the improvable points there are, that's probably on games. Or did I say that wrong? Uh, you said it wrong. Yeah, it's logical. Yeah. Logical. You said logical, it wrong. Re- it's logical reasoning. Yeah, logical reasoning has the majority of points. Logic games, uh, however, may have the majority of improvable points, and that's why. But I mean, obviously, you know, if you're doing games and you just stall and you're not making any more progress, then it's no longer time to be there. But generally speaking, most people can make more progress on games. Yeah, I think that games, when we talk about minus one or getting perfect. I think about that really when I'm looking at what the average 170 scorer looks like. I think, from my experience, the average 170 scorer is getting perfect, maybe minus one on games, then minus three on each of the other sections to get a total of 10 wrong on your typical raw score conversion that's around a 170. So that, that, that those ratios, in my experience, kind of hold true across the board. So maybe a person with the 160s, again, that has that same ratio of one to three to three to three. So... I think that games is the lowest hanging fruit for most people and it's worth focusing on. But if you're at minus three or minus two, that could be enough where, you know, it is worth moving on to reasoning since it is half the exam and any gains you make there in reasoning are automatically doubled. So I do think that it's worth spending a lot of time on games and reasoning and less so on reading comp, but I wouldn't overly focus on games if you're doing decently. Even a minus three or minus four could be enough to leave off there and spend more time on reasoning instead. Yeah, and even though reading comp is the hardest, it doesn't mean, like, impossible. It just means, like, relatively harder. So, you know, if you have put no effort at all into RC, RC might now be the low-hanging fruit. Um, And it's all about, like, where you think improvements are. Or if, you know, for some reason you had, like, just never learned negations or never learned conditional logic, then that's pretty low-hanging fruit on logical reasoning. And just in general, you want to seek out the low-hanging stuff. Or if you've got some new RC technique, you're like, whoa, this really made things clearer. And working to applying that can can make sense. Um, it's all about seeking out where you think the the next points are likeliest to come from. And also look at where you're scoring right now. Like let's say potentially you you, you get you have your practice test score results and you're getting minus seven on each section. If you're getting minus seven on each section, then there's room for room for improvement in all areas, and you might want to work on each of them for a bit. It's when it's disproportionate errors in one area over others 
then there's a clear natural point moving forward. I think this focus on games and reasoning should be balanced out by where you actually are in practice on your test results. Maybe take the average of your most recent five exams and then look at where your weak areas were and use that as your basis for focusing going forward. So the next question is how to work on focusing in on the stimulus without being caught up by the traps, finding the question and answering that question. So I think that the, the traps here, you know, these, these are kind of the patterns I was talking about earlier. And so I think you've got to figure out what your conceptual barriers are. If it is a, a particular abstract term or phrase, focus on that. Or if there's multiple phrases that could be said that you might think are synonymous, but not are actually not in practice, then focus on that. I think reading carefully is obviously the, the biggest thing that we keep coming back to on this episode. I think reading carefully is extremely important. And so slowing down, finding what's the conclusion, what's the evidence and going forward from there. Because I think focusing on the stimulus is not enough. That's good, but we want to get even more specific in understanding the structure of the argument. Because I think the structure is really where your points come from. It's where the answers come from, not simply the content itself. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'd want to hear more from this student to see exactly what they mean here, because the framing doesn't, I'm not quite clear on it. For, for me, I think the traps are mostly in the answers, whereas the stimulus is mostly about reading and understanding. It can be difficult. And there are things in the stimulus that like maybe are put there to make you think you've understood it when you haven't. But I think in most cases, people are sort of aware that, I don't know, that they may not know what a word means or something. And so it's less about like a trap and more about like, well, crap, there's a gap there. Um, so as, as for how to actually do it, I think the big thing for me is to give yourself time to do it and know that like the most important thing is understanding the stimulus and so that you can take the time to do it and to break it down into parts, conclusion and reasoning. And then, you know, they say finding the question and answering that question. Um, I think that's almost secondary that like the stimulus is the main thing and that then the question stem, which is the question and answering it. If you've understood the stimulus is sort of second nature. And if you haven't, then it's going to be hard. I think this person kind of used the word trap a little bit more broadly than you or I might have. I think without, I think they're really talking more about just how to avoid getting confused or avoid getting bogged down in something difficult. And I think that like I said, one structure that could confuse students is when the the conclusion's buried in the middle of the stimulus. We're used to having the conclusion ideally at the end, and if not, then at the beginning. The other thing I can make, I think that can make a stimulus overly difficult is when they don't use clear indicator words for evidence or and conclusion or for uh, necessary or sufficient conditions when we're dealing with conditional logic. And so I think that just having a basic proficiency in indicator words and how to navigate a more difficult stimulus that does not contain as many difficult words, I think is the first step. But yeah, I think overall, like you said, the traps are typically more often in the answer choices, either something that is incredibly tempting or something that is incredibly discouraging. And so kind of analyzing your answer choices is going to be just as important, if not more so. So we've got one more question in the chat here. With respect to reading carefully, more so for RC, how do I read carefully and fast? I can't unlock this for the life of me. At least that's what it feels like. So I don't think there is a way around it. 
I think you have to read carefully, and that's it. And, you know, you don't read, like, unnaturally slowly when doing it, but you don't try and go faster than is comfortable because you want to be reading at a comfortable pace and so that you can understand it. And then as you practice, you will get somewhat faster. I have talked in the past about, like, um, speed reading techniques, which I think can be especially helpful for skimming something later. And in a few cases, I've seen it help where someone's just like regular reading speed was slower than their, like their physical reading speed was slower than their ability of their brain to process. And by increasing their reading speed, they like caught up to how fast their brain can process. Um, Spreeder.com is a good site you can use for that. And, but you know, if you're reading at a regular pace and like Spreeder doesn't help, like it mostly is just for skimming in that case. And I, I don't think there is an answer to this. I think you just have to read carefully and trust that if you understand things, it will improve your speed on the questions. Uh, oh, sorry, one more thing. Um, look up words you don't know. That is often a stumbling block on reading carefully. And also, um, I think reading bits of The Economist or like looking up concepts you don't know, like just reading the Wikipedia page and like some science thing that was in the passage or reading the science articles in The Economist can help just give you like a baseline level of knowledge. It helps you get through some unfamiliar subjects a bit faster. Agreed. I think that honestly, not enough students have spent enough time reading over the course of their entire lives. And so it's kind of hard to improve on towards the end once you have the LSAT just a few months away. So I think that ultimately speed will come with more exposure to the passages. And if you're someone who has spent more time looking at, looking at screens than looking at books lately, then it's time to spend, to spend more time reading overall as well as specifically reading LSAT passages. I think you know, The Economist and Scientific American are great to give yourself some familiarity with the types of topics that are tested on the LSAT, but there are also you know, over, over 80 released exams, nearly 100 actually, with lots and lots of passages for you to, to study from and practice on. And so I think just in general, getting used to this type of reading, as well as the way that LSAT likes to write these passages will help you a lot because believe it or not, these passages are not from the real world. They are adapted from original source material, but they are rewritten by LSAC to, in a way, be more harder, be more hard, be more dense, and to cover a lot more ground in a very short period of time. And so I think that exposing yourself to the passages and as an exercise, extracting the main idea, extracting the author's opinion, the author's tone, and testing yourself on that, kind of like we were talking earlier about predicting LR answer choices by writing them out beforehand and predicting, do the same for RC. Predict what is the author's opinion, what is the tone, what's the main idea. And then, of course, typically they will ask at least one of those things in the questions so you can see how your prephrase or prediction matches how LSAC chose to articulate that concept. Okay, so... For those people listening in the chat, I think we're actually out of our preset questions and no one else is asking anything, um, but we do have a bit more time we were intending to do here. So has anyone got some questions they could type out or put in the Q&A or the chat? Um, otherwise, I think we might have to wrap it up unless you've got something, Steve, but I'm guessing someone will step up and, and ask something. I suppose one thing we could talk about is a general overview of what's happening this summer with the June July LSATs and beyond if you want to do do a quick rundown of that. Uh let's see let's see if anybody asked something. Oh here's one. 
Uh, one person's asking in the chat, since I have access to PDFs of most LSATs, would you recommend reading the older RC sections from older tests during leisure time, maybe during my commute? Yeah, why not? I think that if that's the only way you're actually going to get through them, then just casually reading them and absorbing them and maybe writing in a notebook on the side what your prephrase is for the author's opinion or main idea, I think is extraordinarily useful. And yeah, if you have the PDFs, you could even put them on your phone or a tablet and that helps you fit in the time during your commute. Great. The other thing you could do during your commute, of course, is listen to our podcast, LSAT Pros. We have, at this point, we have over a dozen episodes, each one's up to an hour long. And so that's a good way to fill the time too. Yeah, I would say yes. I would also say like reading passages you've done, but like a while ago can also be helpful because you're going to see more stuff as you go through them, like still see like, oh, you know, I'm not sure what this word means, even though I've done this passage before. And you may also see like the author's opinion structure more clearly. And so I think redoing them is helpful. But like if you're really not going to get to them, then it definitely doesn't hurt to like read some of the passages, um, the early passages as a way to practice. Yeah, cool. Uh, Another question in the chat here, more tips on how to prep for the digital version when you have the paper versions. For example, on the digital, we can only underline. So I'm guessing this person is taking the digital LSAT maybe in July or of course, definitely in September, October, November when it will be fully digital. And so as for how to prep for the digital, I'd say the best thing is if you can get the PDFs, that will be enormously useful because that'll better replicate the experience of doing it on a screen. But either way, I think the biggest difference is that you will no longer be able to write on the page itself. You cannot draw freehand or write freehand on the tablet. You're limited to LSAC's tools and functionalities like the underlining and highlighting that you mentioned. So I think that what you want to do is do you always do your work on a separate page. Ideally, of course, use LSAC's familiarization tool. I'm hoping they'll be releasing more on that in the future. You could see the digital one at familiar.lsac.org. But I say overall, it's kind of the opposite of all their advice that Graham and I have been giving in the past about the paper version, because now you can't write on the page, you have to write separately. So I'd say get used to writing separately, get used to taking your notes to the side, any diagramming on the side, but never on the page itself. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, just a couple more notes on a tablet. So what you're going to be able to do, or tablet and PDFs, what you're going to be able to do in a tablet is enter your answers, mark off answers, Uh, underline stuff or highlight. Um, Basically, there's no more answer sheet as far as I know. You just mark it on the thing and then that's that. So to replicate that, if you have any kind of tablet at home, like any iPad, any Android tablet, and you can get the PDFs, then if you can get a stylus for the tablet, you could replicate the format where you're actually like circling the answer on the tablet and that's your official thing, but then your notes are a separate page. So if you have any iPad starting from like the more recent ones, they just sold uh, like an iPad, uh, I think in 2018, it was like the base level one that's like $300 or something. Um, That one supports the Apple Pencil, which is like a great stylus for an iPad. If not, you can get these old iPads that are like meant to replicate fingers. They're not as good, but they'll be fine for this. Uh, Sorry, did I say older iPad? I meant to say older stylus. Um, You can get a stylus for like older iPads or for Android tablets that like isn't Bluetooth, but it just... um, mimisk a finger and so you can use that to circle answers and i would try and do your tests on this tablet screen with a pdf like that Uh, microsoft surface is obviously also like good for that if you have one around um and then have your scrap paper on the side and just practice making 
any notes you would make for the questions that way. So like, you know, I should do this myself. I'm probably going to end up like, you know, maybe I'll have made no notes until question 13, but then on question 13, I might like start writing a few things beside it and I'll draw my diagrams there or draw some words or cross off answers or something. And then, so I might have a page of say for logical reasoning that has like notes on a subset of the questions and otherwise I'm just marking stuff up on the screen. And for logic games, you'd want to have like a arranged way of doing it on the scrap paper. When you say arranged way, could you clarify that? Yeah, sure. So what I mean is like when I do logic games now, I draw all my diagrams in the second page. I draw the diagrams underneath the questions and I draw individual diagrams by the questions. I'd probably do the same thing where I have like one page per game. I draw my main diagram like sort of mid bottom left of the page and I might draw like question one at the top left of the page, draw any diagrams for it there, draw question two a bit below that, draw question three like up higher. Like I, might, I would probably replicate like the same uh, structure where like the questions are the top half of the page. My main diagram is like bottom half. Any spillover might be like the bottom white right quadrant. Um, but I, I would try to have it like the same format so that my eyes always know where to look. And there's like a regular pattern because I think this is very important. If you're looking all over the place, your eyes are just going to have to do that focusing. Whereas if you get an arranged pattern, it's easier to process. That makes a lot of sense. I would definitely agree with that. I think that overall, you want a system that you can replicate every single time you do an exam. And especially for games, given that they're they're grouped and you are doing a lot of writing, you always want it to be the same way every single time. And that goes for both your diagramming style as well as for what your layout looks like on the page. I think obviously the notes are a bit less important for the other sections, but for games, I think that's really key. We got a related question here about the digital test, the writing section in particular, just asking about details on that. And so I could share a bit on that. The June LSAT going forward is the first exam where you will not be doing the writing sample at the test center. You'll be doing it later on your own time. I believe you have up to one year after the LSAT test administration to do the writing sample. You'll do it typically on your computer. They'll monitor you with a webcam and a microphone to make sure it's really you. They'll have you hold up your government issued ID to confirm for security purposes. But yeah, you'll just be typing it out. It is still the 35 minute time constraint. And I think it's kind of nice because you're obviously your brain is fried after doing five LSAT sections. You don't want to have to do more writing after that because it obviously won't be your best quality work. I think still though, because the writing sample is not scored, law schools don't really care that much. Maybe they'll be a little bit more likely to look at it because it is typed, so it's more legible. But otherwise, I wouldn't think too much about it, honestly. And just to make sure, um, you said it's June, so that's like on a non-digital LSAT, they're getting rid of the physical writing sample. Okay, good. So people starting June can take the, or have to, take the digital writing sample. That's right. There's no written option on June. Exactly. Yeah. So June, everyone's going to be doing it on their own time later from their own computer, most likely. But yeah, not on, not at the exam center itself. Yeah. So uh, I don't know the details of this yet, but I'm assuming they'll have some sort of like a digital practice tool or something you can do uh, to just like avoid any software errors. Um, I would like look into that when the time comes to see what's available, because I imagine when it first rolls out, there may be like a few hiccups um, and just make sure that if you can test the setup before before it happens or look at their system requirements page and make sure you've got whatever they're requiring. Um, and yeah, I would definitely like, I don't think it, you need to like practice that much for it, but I would make sure to write a decent essay. And I would probably practice a bit more than I would recommend for the previous version 
to be clear for the previous version i would say practice like once <laughs> um so now i'm saying maybe practice it like two or three times or maybe write it once and have someone read what you wrote and have them give you some feedback and then try another one and get some more feedback so not much but like a little bit more just because it is going to be legible and so i think these will actually be looked at i don't think it'll matter that much because law school admissions are mainly based on uh gpa lsat and then some other soft factors but in a few borderline cases it might make a difference and it's just a bit more likely to be looked at now so i'd put a bit more effort into it but not still not much effort you just take it seriously try make a balanced well-reasoned argument acknowledging the strengths of the side that you pick and the weaknesses of what you pick in the end just to kind of balance it out a bit because it is a choice between two sides ultimately on on the writing sample as for that that technical thing you mentioned graham yeah lsac is they've been quite detailed in laying out on their site all the technical specs because they want to avoid getting thousands and thousands of support inquiries if somebody has trouble like you know use it use the latest browser try multiple browsers run all updates simple things of that nature and it's on LSAC's site. I don't think they have the digital LSAT pra- writing sample practice tool yet. They only have the actual scored LSAT content familiarization tool. But since the June LSAT's coming up very soon, I think that they will probably release be releasing that shortly. Okay, we'll drop LSAC's link in the show notes then. And uh, do you know if there's a grammar or a spell check on the digital LSAT writing tool? That's a great question. I have no idea about that. My guess is that they won't actually just because they seem to be kind of not the most tech savvy with these things. Maybe they want to actually just see what your unfiltered writing is like. But that's kind of funny, really, because every attorney who is using a computer and is using word processing software that has that functionality. So I think that even if your spelling is not perfect as an attorney, while that's desirable, it's not necessary because of these tools. Yeah, so... Depending on whether that is included, I might practice that a little bit. I haven't ever really graded LSAT writing samples, which shows you the extreme low importance placed on them. They, they really don't matter. And they probably still won't matter. But I did teach SAT classes where I graded like uh, students' writing samples. And they were mostly garbage. Like Even from like otherwise articulate students who would do well, like the quality of writing was just really bad. Now, you're at least four years older than that now and like have gone through college and your writing's probably better but most of your writing is done with spell check there's autocorrect and if if i i don't know we don't know maybe maybe else like we'll have a spell check but if it turns out there's no spell check no autocorrect no underlining no nothing um you might want to do a couple run throughs and just like run your output through a spell check and just check if you're doing anything like routinely wrong and then just try and avoid that because the people reading these will have good grammar and good spelling on average and it may be something that they like notice and give more weight than they should to whereas if it was just in in handwriting they might not notice at all any of your little typos or whatever yeah agreed i'd say don't be overly lazy when it comes to your spelling put some effort into it and honestly i think the writing sample can be simple enough depending on how you frame it that you could write the whole thing in 25 30 minutes and have, or even less time than that, and then have plenty of time to double check and triple check it over. And I think that one benefit of it being typed is that you could probably do it more quickly. I think it's faster to type than it is to write by hand, especially since we're all more practiced in typing these days than writing things by hand. So I'd say that maybe aim to finish it in 20, 25 minutes and then have a good buffer to go back and just reread it to make sure that your grammar 
and spelling and punctuation were all pretty solid. I think that it's honestly, it's not worth focusing on too much about, but like, but like Graham said, I think that they will look at it more just because it will be easier to look at. So definitely put some effort into it. Anyway, I think we've got one or two more questions here and then we could wrap up. Sure. I just actually had one more thing in a writing sample. Uh, yeah, two more sure. things actually. One, if you're proofreading, you'll be doing this writing sample at home. So you can actually use a really good proofreading technique that uh, you can't in a test center. And that technique is reading it out loud. You will be amazed at how many errors you catch. I do this for all of my writing. Um, just read what you've written out loud and you'll be like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. Or, oh, there's a typo there and so on. Um, like Steve said, if you just finish it in 25 minutes and you have time to read it out loud uh, and proofread that way. The other thing would be, you know, a year from now, it may turn out that like nothing changed about the writing sample and it's utterly unimportant, but we're giving it a bit more focus here because since it's changing, since it's being written, we don't know what ad comms will do with it and maybe it'll put a bit more importance. So just take it like mildly more seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So one or two more questions here. One is the experimental portion could be everywhere in the test, not necessarily the last section. Correct. Yeah, the experimental could be any one of the five. For a while, LSAC was making it always one of the first three, but that changed, I think, five or six years ago. Now the LSAC experimental is any one of the five, so don't try to identify it. Don't try to think too much about it. Just treat every section like it's the real thing because there have been people who thought they were smart and thought they knew which one it was and they were wrong, and their scores suffered big time for it. So take them all seriously. And the experimental can also be any one of the three games reasoning or reading comp of course if you have two games or two reading comps or three reasonings you know at least which type it was even if you don't know specifically which one it was but then of course later it is possible to figure it out through discussing with other test takers just simply to id which one was experimental but also know that not everybody will have the same experimental some people will have an extra games others will have extra reasoning and so on yeah and even in the same test center i think the order um, can differ where, you know, you might have section three as your experimental. Someone else might have section five. Yeah. Yeah. They scramble it all together. Yeah. So someone talks about, can you talk about the strategy of canceling the score? Uh, don't that's uh, we, we talked about this at more at length at another podcast, but since we're almost done here, that's uh, pretty much all the time we've got for it. Basically never do it. There's no advantage. Schools just look at the highest score. They'll see a cancel. Um, so they'll, and maybe make an inference of like, oh, you did really bad and you might be canceling an excellent score. There's no upside and there's possible downside to canceling. So just don't do it. And that is, I believe, episode 13 released on April 1st for those who want to check that out. It's all about how to decide whether to cancel and how to, how to go about retaking the LSAT. And again, the short answer is specifically don't cancel your LSAT score. There's really not a reason to law schools only take the highest. All right, I think we can wrap it up there. And so thanks everyone for listening to LSAT Pros. You can find me, Graham, on uh, lsathacks.com or the best way to reach me is on Instagram and that's Graham underscore Blake, G-R-A-E-M-E underscore Blake on Instagram. What about you, Steve? And so the best way to reach me is through the LSAT blog. You can also check out the LSAT Unplugged YouTube channel and podcast and email me as well at lsatunplugged at gmail.com.